It's been 50 years since Geraldo Rivera exposed the appalling conditions inside the Willowbrook State School forever changing how people with disabilities are treated. Tonight, we'll look back on Geraldo's groundbreaking reporting and meet the Willowbrook patient turned advocate fighting for an even more inclusive future. That, as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. Just over 50 years ago, Geraldo Rivera shocked the nation with his groundbreaking expose on the abuse taking place at Willowbrook State School, the time the largest institution in the world for people with disabilities. Geraldo's reporting, which featured interviews with patients and images of the deplorable conditions at the facility, led to the eventual closing of Willowbrook and the passage of civil rights protections for people with developmental disabilities. A new documentary created by the New York State Developmental Disabilities Planning Council titled The Path Forward, Remembering Willowbrook, looks back on this historic event some 50 years later. Let's take a look. How long have you been at Willowbrook? 18 years. How is it living on the ward that you live? Disgrace. The attendants are trying their best, but the staff is just too small to do anything more than just try and keep the place clean. When there's only one person to take care of 30 or 40, nothing good can possibly happen. No rehabilitation, no training, nothing. The attendants are as much the victim of the conditions here as the patients are. <sighs> My problem with telling the story 50 years later is that I'm like uh, Pavlov's dog. I, I react and I get flashed back to that, uh, to the obscene, uh, the torture of the, of the uh, residents, the inmates there. It was something so, so utterly terrible that it was almost unbelievable. And joining us now are Vicki Haifa, the acting executive director of the New York Developmental Disabilities Council and a producer of the film, Bernard Caraballo, a former patient at Willowbrook and the founder of the Self-Advocacy Association of New York State, and Geraldo Rivera, the journalist, television host, author, whose story changed our country's treatment of people with disabilities forever. Welcome to all of you. So good to have you here with us. Thank you for having us. Uh, let, let me start, Geraldo, with you. And you and I go back decades. And, and I remember this story that you did. I was actually in law school in New York City at the time. So let's let's preface this conversation about the documentary with you telling us how did you come across this story and how did you conduct this extraordinary investigation? There was a doctor, Michael Wilkins, actually two of them, Bill Bronston, two colleagues who were so disgusted at the conditions at the Willowbrook State School that uh, they they left. They left with the intent on exposing to the world uh, the horrible conditions that they uh, they had witnessed 
up close and personally. And it really was, uh, you know, it was just the tip. I knew the doctors. I believed in them. I had worked with them on previous stories. I did not believe uh, the uh, the descriptions, the graphic descriptions of what I was about to see. It was just too unbelievable. It was just too uh, it, too graphic and horrifying. I said, "Okay, it's going to be bad," but I knew it would be bad. I didn't know it would be this bad, and it was it was awful. The worst experience, uh, really, worst thing I'd ever seen. How did you then go about getting the access? Because one of the the the, uh, the highlights of the story, if you use the term highlight, was your your access that you got to the facilities and to the residents there. How did that come about? Well, one of the uh, enticements for me to do the story, not that I needed much encouragement, but was uh, uh, the key. Mike Wilkins had, uh, you know, purloined a key. Uh, to one of the buildings, uh, Building 6. The key opened all of the facilities, really. Uh, And with the, you know, with the knowledge that I could gain access, uh, even though we knew we would be caught and thrown out eventually, uh, but having the key was uh, uh, was the added incentive we needed to do the story. They were not gonna keep us outside. Uh, historically, even uh, Robert Kennedy was not allowed to bring Kennedy uh, cameras inside. When in 1965, he went in and left rattled, calling it a snake pit. Uh, so we were determined, uh, uh, you know, I was going to capture on on film. Uh, it was film in those days, not video. Uh, capture the reality, the horrifying, harsh reality that uh, people like Bernard lived under. When you went to to your producers and proposed, this is what I want to look into. And as it began to unfold, and it became, as you said, so graphic and so very painful even to watch. Did you get any pushback from from the people inside the the producer saying, well, wait a minute, should we be doing this? Or did everybody get all in on it? No one believed the monumental scope of the story. When I pitched it, after it had been pitched to me, having not yet seen it myself, uh, there was a reluctance, uh, but a grudging uh, acceptance that I had by that time been in the business for a couple of years. I had a pretty good track record. So if I said it was a good story, there was the assignment desk tended to believe me. Uh, but again, we all had no idea what we were dealing with. Uh, this was something that was so catastrophic, so cataclysmic that, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was, a, you know, a veteran of uh, street reporting and, uh, you know, and fighting my way in with junkies and some of the worst things of, uh, of the, uh, you know, the mean streets of New York City. But I was unprepared, Jack. This was, uh, this was something that haunts me. I swear to God, I still can hear it. And I can still smell it a half a century later. And, and again, having seen it at the time, and, and for folks that are watching this, and they'll watch hopefully a documentary, but the 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 it was shocking is a dramatic understatement to try yeah. to describe what it is you found there. So, Vicky, let me ask you this. We are some 50 years gone by now. There have been changes made, and I'll come to you about them in, in a few minutes. But but the first question for you is, why did you want to do this documentary and why now? Sure. Well, um, you know, we always need to remember the past to protect the future. So last year, um, with the 50th anniversary 
um, upon us. Uh, I had the I had the idea. It was I have to say it was my idea because you know I remember this story. I remember watching it. Um, you know when I was younger. So I I thought um, we need to make uh, a documentary on this and. And really, you know, our goal with the documentary was to raise awareness because, you know, there are many people, particularly younger generations, that have never heard of Willowbrook. And that needs to change. We really need to raise awareness so that this never happens again. Um, but also, we wanted it to be uh, the film to be a celebration uh, of inclusion for people with disabilities. There were several laws that were passed after the expose that were designed to protect people with disabilities. So we want people to be aware of that, um, that we've made you know, tremendous change in the disability system. And really, uh, so we're so grateful for both Geraldo and, and Bernard for paving the way. And I will get to you in a few moments about the, those changes that have been made, because you use an interesting word when you say a celebration. You wouldn't usually associate the word celebration with Willowbrook. But when you look at what happened after this and as a consequence of this, it's certainly things that should be applauded. We'll get there in a moment. Bernard, let me bring you into the conversation, if I can. You were a resident at Willowbrook for a good portion of your life. 18 years. Yeah. How, how did you get there? Why were you placed in there? And and tell me about what the conditions before Geraldo got there. Tell me about what you remember about the conditions. It was it was horrible. Every every room had about eighty people. Every war had about sixty people. Um, and to stab to take care of When Bernard, why did you want to talk to Geraldo back then? Because the kids, the kids, Worse and worse at the time, and I felt this could not go on any longer. So, Geraldo, one of the aspects of this that made it so powerful was this wasn't a look at Willowbrook from 10,000 feet up. Bring in a couple of experts. What's going on here? What needs to be done? You were, as you described, you were in the door. You got, you got in the door. And you talked to people like Bernard. But that was a, a, a bit unusual approach to take for a story, even, even a, an in-depth investigation like this, using Bernard and others essentially as your sources here. Why, why did you decide to do that? And, and at some point in time, were you concerned that it that whether it would work or not for telling the story? Well, that's a great question, Jack. You know, this I had very little experience with people with disabilities. It was not anyone in my family. Uh, generally speaking, classically, the most active people, the the warriors, are the parents of the people closest to it. And indeed, in the Wilbrook saga. The parents, led by Vicki Schnapps and Maury, her husband, and others, really led the way. Uh, but having never seen nor experienced it, I think helped in a sense that 
I was so utterly unprepared. Uh, he, we're talking about New York City. It's not like, uh, you know, you're in the steppes of Russia. Uh, this was New York City. Uh, and here you have the world's largest institution of this sort. And my God, the, the level of care was so scandalous. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable yeah. that this could exist in the capital of the world, in New York City, and go on for so many years. And, and despite Robert Kennedy's uh, heroic uh, efforts and, and the parents and their lonely plea and all the rest, there it was. There it was, and, and once, once we started the process of, uh, of recording what was happening, I, I, I think that, and I, I, I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but I can relate, I believe now, to what American GIs felt when they came to the concentration camps. You know, I know that that may sound like a wild exaggeration, but it's not. It, it, these weren't death camps, but they were they were places where people with disabilities were utterly abandoned and whatever condition they had was being exacerbated, was being made worse, open sores, uh, smeared with their own feces, uh, knocking their heads against the wall, kids under kitchen sinks, uh, you know, uh, Bernard says 60 uh, residents for two attendants. And one of the attendants is usually gone. There's one person, you know, with the three uh, kids uh, hanging on to her. Uh, and then they fed them this kind of slush in, a, in, a, in an assembly line. Each kid, like a, a little bird opening their mouth and uh, sh shoveling uh, this slushy mush in their in their that's talk about two to three minutes. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. So just imagine, just imagine. If and Vicky, let me ask you this: as someone who is looking back on it now, and and again, having having seen it when it was aired, and and it had it 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 literally grabbed you by the throat. And as, as Geraldo said, it you know you, you just didn't imagine anything like this existing still in the 1970s in New York City, the capital of the world. Right. I saw, I, mean, I, saw I saw I saw one description where it said as if these were coffins with live people just being thrust inside and left there. Vicky, is that from your perspective? Is that a fairly accurate? But, yes, you know, uh, I never visited there, um, yeah. uh, but um, you'll see in the documentary, Jane Curtin, who she actually uh, was the first. She was uh, worked for Staten Island Vance, had gone there and had taken just horrific, had uh, horrible uh, photographs showing the conditions there. But, you know, nothing ever happened. But in, in our documentary, she talks about it's just amazing that this happened during our watch during, you know, this is during our lifetime, which is just amazing. It's not back, you know, in the old days, this happened, you know, 50 years ago, seems like a long time ago. I was alive back then though. So it's just incredible uh, to, you know, to see. So no, I, 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 you know, I think the description is accurate. I never was there, but um, certainly no. from what I've seen in, in the pictures, it, it was horrifying. From what you've learned about this, Vicki, certainly it was not designed initially to be this this horrible scenario. How did it lose its way? 
Yeah, so it was designed actually back in the, it opened in the 1940s and it was designed to be a state-of-the-art um, facility that where people, you know, would want to send their children to get the best care. And back then, you know, doctors, once you were diagnosed, they said your best bet is to send them to an institution in Willowbrook, obviously wasn't the only institution uh, in our state. Um, but so it was designed for 2000 people, but due to budget cuts over the years, you know, they had to cut back staffing. Um, and, you know, there were more people that uh, needed care that at its height, it had over 6,200 people, which made it the largest, as you said, the largest institution in the world. Um, so it just gradually happened over time because of budget cuts and, you know, having to cut staff. It wasn't something initially they really had, I think, good intentions with this facility. And it was not, um, Geraldo, to you, it, it, it was not something that was able to be remedied, which resulted in basically it, it shutting down a few years after the report? Just to continue Vicky's uh, thought there, Jack, uh, a second. What happened is it became a, a reality of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, so the parents, in Bernard's case, uh, you know, his mom, uh, economically disadvantaged, uh, she has a, a child. Uh, Bernard had a, a, a condition uh, improperly diagnosed. Uh, so the doctor says to the poor Puerto Rican woman on the Lower East Side, uh, you know, put him in the institution. It was the conversation that happened scores of times, hundreds, thousands of times to other families over time. So there, put him in the institution. So the institution became, became the go-to. So the institution became like, okay, you got a situation, kid's not absolutely perfect, plop. And then what happened once you plopped, the conditions generally deteriorated, even with despite the, you know, some noble souls that tried their best. There was no remediation, no education, uh, no sanitation. Uh, there was only the convenience of you have a problem, Here's, here's how you deal with it. Then you go on with life. And then, uh, you know, the average life expectancy was, you know, 20, 30 years. On the weekend, the old one staff for 16 people on, on the weekend. Yeah. One staffer. I was just going to say, and the parents were not allowed to visit. They would visit, but they were not allowed inside the building. So they never I, see the conditions. So it, 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 these conditions weren't seen, essentially, and, and until Geraldo's story came out. Yes, Vicky? Yep. Vicky, let me come back to something that you mentioned before. But I think it's important, and I, I think the, the documentary does a good job focusing on this. And, and as we know throughout history, oftentimes it takes great crises, great tragedies, to prompt change here. Talk about some of the, and it, it's hard to use the word again, I said this before, but, but positive uh, in conjunction with Willowbrook, but talk about things that have come out as a consequence of this story being told that you can look at as being positive. Sure. So, you know, Willowbrook eventually closed. It wasn't until 1987, but Willowbrook closed along with other institutions across the state. And as I said, there were several laws that were passed. One law was the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, 
which allowed finally children with disabilities to be educated in public schools. They hadn't been allowed to do that before, before that federal law was passed. There was another law called the Civil Rights for Institutionalized Persons Act, which you know, protects people in, in institutions. Um, there is, as a result of the expose, there's now uh, in every state and territory across the country, a protection advocacy system that is designed to protect uh, the rights of people with disabilities and advocate on their behalf. So it really, it was such a, um, you know, driving force in really making major, major changes in the disability system. Hey, Bernard, I, I know that you left immediately after this. I and as I mentioned, as I mentioned, you um, started up a, a group, the Self-Advocacy Association of, of New York State. Right. What, what what does your group do then to help people who who find themselves in need of assistance? They advocate for other people who cannot speak for themselves. And they advocate for themselves or as much as civil rights organizations. All right. And you've been doing that since you left. Yes. He's an old man now. <laughs> as I'm we young. all are. I, Not you, Vicky. We're gonna leave you out of this. But as I said, I'm Ralph not. and I go back they'll go back decades to our early days, first our days as lawyers and then our early days in television. Bernard's just a kid here. Um yes. yeah. I'm the same age as you are. Oh, I know. You're, you're doing well, though, Bernard. You're doing well. Great Vicky, yeah, Vicky, um, we talked about some of the positive things that have come out of this. What still needs to be done? Yeah, I mean, that's the other point of when we ah. make that message at the end of the documentary. We've made a lot of progress, but we still have some more work to do. Yeah. There are still, you know, major barriers that people with disabilities face and being able to live fully included lives in the community they're choosing. So we know unemployment for people among uh, that have disabilities is much higher than for people without disabilities. They still have uh, barriers to finding appropriate housing, affordable housing in the community, still barriers to transportation and all, you know, a host of areas. So there's still some work to be done. We're, we're getting there and that's why we say we're on the path forward, but you know, we're not there yet. We still, you know, we still have some barriers to uh, address and also protect against further budget cuts, right? So that's the other thing that, you know, we're, we're you know, we have very strong advocates, um, parent advocates and self-advocates that, that really do a good job of, of trying to make sure that we don't see the kind of budget cuts that we saw, you know, back, back in the days of Willowbrook that, you know, resulted in that institution becoming what it did. How important, Vicki, you mentioned advocacy, how important are, are groups, advocacy groups like Bernard and his group to, to keeping this and in some ways the image of how bad this was in front of the public so that we don't let it ever go back. And so that we also as members of the public, and especially legislators, we make sure we, as you talk about in, in the title of the film, make sure we're moving forward. Yeah, it's so important. You know, my organization works very closely with uh, the state, the Saney's um, Advocacy Association, along with other parent and other self-advocacy groups. And it's so important because those personal stories are what really resonate with policymakers, legislators, and just the general public. So I think, 
you know, having people continue to, to, you know, raise awareness about Wilbrook or other, you know, there's other, there's still instances of abuse happening. Now we have group homes, but we hear about it. Um, it hasn't gone away right. with, with Willowbrook closing. We still have that. Um, so we need to have those people uh, like Bernard, who's done such a great job and is such a strong advocate, but that's so important, you know, as I said, for policymakers and legislators to hear those personal stories. Yeah. Geraldo, I got about a minute left. We could talk forever, but as you know, the tyranny of, of time and, and television here. So let me give you the last word. At, at, you look back at this some 50 years later, and people are going to be looking at this for the first time. And, and it's a marvelous documentary. It, it's compelling. It makes people think. What do you want people to come away with after they watch this documentary? Uh, first, I, you know, I'm, all, I'm getting all verklempt here, Jack, but I, I want... Uh, the friendship Bernard and I have is uh, is something that is it's almost like a, a, it's my reward for anything I've done. It's uh, I cherish him. He's my brother. Uh, you know, we, we we joke that we're twins, uh, uh, and he, he's been my guide in many ways, my uh, my my inspiration. But I I want people to guard against what Vicky alluded to the out of sight, out of mind phenomenon. Uh -huh. You have to stay engaged, whether it's your, your old mom in the nursing home or, uh, yeah. uh, or a, a kid in a, in a group home. Uh, if you don't have the outside looking in, right. there's a tendency to cut corners, a tendency to stay up light on the weekends, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, to underpay, uh, to not uh, vet uh, you know, uh, staffers to, uh, you know, put in that extra uh, resident uh, or two in a place that's designed for fewer people. It, there's a tendency to go take the easy way, yeah. the easy way out. This is the right way. Yep. I'm not preaching. I am, I am you know, uh, uh, everyone's got to deal with their own situations in their own way, but just no more out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. We're all created equal. The laws of the state and of the country demand, mandate, require equal treatment. Yeah. And I think that equality, the equality guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, the United States Constitution, is what right. we should bear in mind. And God yeah. bless everybody, like yeah. the lawyers from New York Civil Liberties Union and the others, Maurice Neffs yeah. and the others and what they did. Yeah, take it the law. And, and and as you say, it is clearly the right way. It was an extraordinarily compelling story back then. It remains a compelling story. Thank you all for spending some time with us today and and for putting together a, a documentary that makes us think, makes us feel, and hopefully puts us on the path of the right direction. Thanks all. Everybody be well. Take care now. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.